This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thank you for all soldiering through. I'm like, we're going to make a break, and everyone's going to make a break for it. So thank you for not. We're going to start with how does SRA stay hidden? And this is a tough one. James Friesen, in The Truth About the False Memory Syndrome, which is a fascinating read, says law enforcement does not investigate crimes they do not believe exist. Prosecutors do not prosecute crimes they do not believe the jury will believe or committed, and the jury will not believe in crimes they have not heard of before. And there we are stuck. We are stuck right there. According to Kay Tolman, and she's serving in the book Serving SRA Survivors, they contacted the Cult Awareness Network, and they estimate about 2% of you in the United States of people have experienced SRA. 2% of Americans are survivors. It's like, ah, oh, that's not a lot. So yep, that puts us at about 6.64 million as of 2021. 2%, two out of 100, one out of 50. So in a church of 100, that would give you a survivor. Now, Patrick, you were just run. Patrick's a professor. He comes in handy. What was it? You were just throwing some percentages at me. Yeah, so if you had a random, if, if, if in a church of 200. So a church of 200 at random, he's yeah, saying. If you had a random sample matching these percentages. Random sample matching these percentages. Probability to have at least one survivor would be a little over 98 percent. The probability of having at least two survivors would be about 91 percent. So, so 91 out of 100 churches with 200 people would have at least two survivors. So that makes it a little more real that makes them in our schools, in our hospitals, walking down the street, passing you in the cars, marrying into our families, which they do. It also makes the perpetrators out there starting getting a little more serious. Now I have people that contact me all the time and they're like, I never believed it. And now I'm married to an SRA active man, and my kids are talking to me about rituals. And now I'm stuck. And this happens quite often. People don't want to believe it, and it does touch our families, and now we're in trouble because we're not talking about this. 
we have to talk about it. So again, we've talked about this before, so when our kids start bringing it to us, we believe it, and then we start taking it to counselors and forensic doctors and to the teachers and to the social workers, it is taken seriously and believed because right now it's, it's not. We have a big problem, and in the courts, they are handing the kids to the perpetrators with 100% custody because the moms are crazy. It's a big problem. There's a Utah ritual abuse case going on right now that I'm following that's kind of fascinating. April 2021, an investigation into ritualistic child sexual abuse and child sex trafficking in Utah County that went on from 1990 to 2010. And it's kind of funny because the county attorney outed himself in this investigation. So David Leavitt complained that Sheriff Mike Smith was having an investigation and that he was part of the investigation that he and his wife were accused of ritual abuse and cannibalism. He outed himself in this investigation, called for the resignation of Sheriff Mike Smith. Fascinating. And so I have a friend who is an investigative reporter, and he sent me all of the police affidavits for this case. In fascinating read. Now, in victim statement number two, it says, we were often told by, redacted, redacted, and other of the countless gatekeepers of the Church of Satan. Now, the gatekeepers in a ritual job is to make sure that no information of, of the group gets out to anybody. They are to keep everybody silent. They take it very seriously. That the Church of Satan had positioned in the world, positioned in the world, and especially in Utah, this was often part of the threats they gave us. And they said that those loyal to Satan, male and female gatekeepers, were in high and low places and professions where they could easily intercept, intervene, and control threats to the Church of Satan, such as professors, attorneys, judges, doctors, psychologists, and more. So whenever a survivor comes forward, no matter what age they are, there are people ready for them. They're ready to stop it, and they do. They are stopped. So in my case, I went to the police, and I filed a report here in Charlevoix County because I felt like that's what God told me to do. I'm like, oh God, that's not what I want to do. Jeez, that's not what I want to do. You know what they do to the people that do this. I mean, that's putting your life on the line. And God's like, that's what I want you to do. I'm like, okay. And they started an investigation. They did even a media blitz. And they put it out in the Petoskey News Review. They had it on the... The news, and I had a friend who called me, and she's like, Lisa, everybody's trying to figure out who you are. I'm like, I'm going to die. Literally, I'm going to die, because that's what they tell you. You tell anybody. They have don't tell rituals where they tell you you're going to die. And 
you believe them. So they ran this investigation for a while, and nothing happened. And the investigative reporter friend ran the Freedom of Information Act recently, and he's like, Lisa, nothing exists. Nothing exists. And it's gone. There's nothing there. Because they have everybody in place. They have judges, they have lawyers, they have police officers, counselors, doctors, social workers, teachers. They've got them all. And that's a problem. And because the, the survivors are coming out and they're trying to figure this out, and if they go to somebody to try to say something, and they go to the wrong person, and generally they will, they're reprogrammed and they're shut up. They're threatened. Like when I was starting to remember stuff, my mom was doing her repression stuff to me, one thing she said was, Think about your kids. You don't want to lose them. Right? Threat. You're going to lose your kids. And you had to take that seriously because you could. And I remember, you know, I'd spend nights sitting in the hall keeping an eye on all my doors of all my kids because it's like, they're going to kill my kids. They're going to take my kids. And there are survivors who have lost their kids. They've come in by the courts and taken kids away, and they're being ritually abused by the parents or by the spouse and there is nothing they can do about it. It's a nightmare. <coughs> I have a friend and she got married into an SRA family, did not know. I know several women that this has happened to, I know some men that this has happened to. And her daughter started talking, about, I think she was four, started talking about ritual stuff which she'd never heard of before but she realized that her at least her husband was sexually abusing her daughter so she got the kids away she started divorce proceedings got her to a forensic doctor and all this stuff and then in, in the courts all of a sudden a psychologist for the other side shows up says the mom has this histrionic disorder the kids are immediately taken away, full custody is given to the dad. She gets two hours a month supervised visitation with her children with everything written down. And this has been going on for years. She, she sees her kids two hours a month for years. Yes. There's nothing she can do. There's another woman that just committed suicide because she can't stop the abuse of her kids. This is happening all over the world. There's one book on the back here that I have in your resources called, um, where is it? Everything's Going to Be Okay by Samantha Baldwin. And that's another story in the UK, a mom who lost her two sons same sort of thing. They were being ritually abused. She tried to protect them. And her kids are about getting close to 18 now. She hasn't seen them. They took them away a couple years ago. The courts told her, if you say that satanic ritual abuse isn't real, we might allow you to see your kids. And she said, I will not say that. 
It's horrific, horrific. And if you want to see an amazing cover-up, and if you can get out of the anger of it and just look at the cover-up and the ability of the power of the elites, look into the Franklin cover-up. And I have that in the, the back also. In November of 1988, federal agencies raided the Franklin Community Federal Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska. How in the world? What in the world? $40 million was missing. The credit union manager was Republican Party activist Lawrence King Jr. Iran-Contra money laundering was mixed into the midst of all this stuff. And there was a nationwide child abuse, sex trafficking ring, and ritual abuse. They were running boys out of Boys Town. Remember Father, Father Flanagan? Yeah. And they were taking them to Republican parties in Washington, D.C., and even running them into the White House under Ronald Reagan and President Bush doing satanic rituals. Mm. Now, the legislature for Nebraska was looking into all this, trying to figure out what was going on, and they had a chief investigator, and he was looking into all this stuff, figuring it out. And he had, in a mysterious plane crash, and in this plane crash, there was a briefcase with all his information in it that disappeared and nobody could find it. And 12 other people have shown up mysteriously dead in the midst of this case. One of the victims in this case ended up in jail when she went and told her story because some, some girls got sent in on this too. So she goes into court to tell her story. She got sent to jail. Fascinating, fascinating. You read this thing and you're like, this is amazing. This is amazing. So you want to see how ritual abuse works and you want to see how elites are involved and you got to go, wow, they've got power. They know how to shut people up. And then other people are like, well, I'm not going to tell my story. I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, I'm either going to end up dead or I'm going to end up in jail. No way. No way. I'm not going to be a whistleblower. Or if you look at Epstein. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you see his temple on the island? Mm -hmm. Have you heard anything about that temple on the island? Yes. Did you? I heard that. In the temple? Oh, we got to talk. Because <laughs> like the, all the people that go there... All the lists of the names, and like nobody's getting in trouble. We know they did stuff. We've got the girls talking about all these things, and like Epstein went to, you know, to jail a little bit. Ghislaine went to, you know, and now everybody else is fine. The cover up of these people is amazing, and there was SRA involved in what they did as well. But the girls are terrified to talk about it, terrified, and should be and should be. So I want to talk a little bit about dissociation, because this is important. Dissociation and DID, which is dissociated disorder, but dissociation first. It's a split in the conscious process in which a group of mental activity breaks away from the mainstream of consciousness to function as a separate unit, unit 
as if belonging to another person. That's from the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. So what in the world are they saying? Oksana says it's a way to escape overwhelming stimulation or unpleasantness by creating a different reality. So for me, it was like, this is too overwhelming, so I'm going to just check out. Uh, or, um, you know, I'm not here. So like I can look at that tree out there, and I can just zone into that tree and be that tree. Sounds weird, but that's kind of the way it goes. Truth about the false memory syndrome, Friesen, Friesen's amazing. He's got a great way of explaining things. Dissociation events tend to come back suddenly rather than gradually. So repression and dissociation are kind of similar but repression is a slow forgetting. If you dissociate something, you can forget it like that. Dissociated events come back suddenly rather than gradually, with very little distortion, lots of details. There's often a sense that it didn't happen to me. So when I dissociate, I'm in a ritual, I'm like, I'm out of here. The information that of what happens, I get a dissociated altar, which we'll talk about in a little bit, a dissociated part, but the information is stored perfectly in that part. When the original event is shocking, entry into the mind via the usual pathway is circumvented. The incoming data are detoured right away remain set apart from everything else. The newly dissociated materi material has no point of contact with other information in the mind. That's why you can get up the next morning, you can go to school, and it's like a different part of your mind's taking over, and that's why you're not thinking about it. And that's why you can function and things are going fine until they're not. And that's why I'm fine here, and then, oop, not fine, fine, not fine, fine, not fine. And now dissociation, I want, uh, there's something I wrote about it to ex kind of explain it. Staring at a spot so softly, disappearing from the room, becoming one with the focus, I am now a red balloon. I am big and round and red, nothing happening in my head. The pain to me is not here because I am a balloon instead. I am dancing in the air, high above the chaos here, but someone moves me from my spot. The balloon has gone from my sphere. And that's a problem with rituals. It's so painful, it just moves you from your dissociation. I search for somewhere else to go, but everything's so scary. So I will go inside my head, in my mind can save me. And I would switch into the left side of my brain. Staring out the window softly at a tree so fine and strong, the branches in the wind swaying. How can this be so wrong? So as I was healing, when things would get overwhelming to me, I would stare out my window and I would just go into the tree and I'd be gone. My kids were like, Mom, Mom, where are you? And I'd just be like in that tree. But safe am I in the present, no longer needing to escape. Why disappear into nothing when no pain is at stake? So call me gently when I wander, into space when I am gone. I will be a present liver, 
if only I can be so strong. So with a survivor, it's hard to differentiate when you're used to horrific things that, okay, this isn't horrific, but it feels horrific if things are overwhelming. So learning to differentiate, okay, this isn't a ritual. Okay, this is scary to me. Someone's mad at me, which to me, mad is like my dad. And if my dad's mad, I'm going to end up in a ritual, so things are going to get really bad. So you start devolving very quickly. So I dissociate. So like if my kids started getting mad at me or things started devolving in the house, I'm just like, oh, I'm in a tree. Or, oh, I'm floating in the air in a balloon. And then I had to start realizing that dissociation isn't helping me as an adult. And that's not what God wants me to do, right? That's not going to God for help. That's not going to God for healing. That's not going to God to help me deal with where I am right now. So I had to realize that that wasn't healthy. So he helped me to learn to stay and deal with things. So then another state is DID, which is a dissociated disorder, although we're trying to switch it to DIR, which is dissociated response, saying it's not a disorder to do that. It's just the way we responded to something. So let's not call us mentally <coughs> disabled. Let's just say we were responding to horrific things. Let's not call it a mental condition. So when a ritual happens, this abuse is going on. It's not happening to me. It's happening to Susie. Susie can dig it. So I'm checked out in the left part of my mind, and Susie's over here, and she's the one that's happening to. Or some, you know, some people create a name, or some people just create a thing, or you know, some people create colors all sorts of different, some people, they used to call it multi-personality disorder. All, they keep changing it around, because we don't like it. So we complain, they, they'll switch the name a little bit. And, or if you have to do an abuse, which is like, I can't do this, so I'll create someone who likes to do it. And then we get evil parts. They're not really evil, but I have to create someone who wants to do those things so that they can do something that I can't do, if that makes sense. But then when we find that part, we're like, oh, I'm evil, right? That's tough. When I was going, you know, healing through these parts, you have all these parts. <coughs> Think of it kind of like a classroom. You've got this classroom filled with all these People and they're all these parts are at the different ages you were when all these rituals and abuses happened, and they're finding that it's not just like it's not just SRA that DID happens to, but it's a lot of hard abuses. So a lot of people have DID or DIR that need to heal from that. So. Think of a classroom filled with chairs, filled with people that you were, all kids of all the different ages you were when each abuse happened, or for me, all these rituals happened. So then you've got to bring each one of these, find out who they are, what happened to them, and you've got to heal them. But then you get some of these thinking that they're evil ones, and they're really not. They were just created to do what you created them to do. 
in, in like this one I found and I'm like, you know, whoa, I am pure evil. And so I'm like, Lord, you know, you need to send me to hell. I get it. And I'm, I'll, I'll go. And this was at the end of my, I think this was in the last two years of my healing. I'm like, and, and I'm, I'm a, I deserve it. Just send me there. I'm okay. And he said, Lisa, is the cross not big enough for you? And I'm like, I'm sorry, Lord, yes. Even for this, the cross is big enough. And it's, be- it's beautiful in the simplicity. The healing, even for SRA, is in the word of God. The cross is big enough no matter what it is. The cross is big enough. Beautiful. Beautiful. So each dissociated part has a function. It holds information. So each one has a ritual that it went through, an abuse that happened. Each one has a position or something that it does. Each one has been mind-controlled because the group learned that, hey, if we dissociate a child and they know when they get that glazed look that they're off, hey, we can get mind control in there and we can make a part and then we can make them do what we want them to do. We can program them. We can, you know, they program suicide in there or they can do all sorts of stuff. It's a mess. And then the flashes, when we have our flashbacks, are parts of these rituals. And then the parts have ways that they communicate with each other. So some parts function. You know, I have parts that, like, have my daily function. We had parts that go to school. Had parts like I had a part that played the piano. So I had one day that I was playing the piano at church, but my part that played the piano didn't come out. And I'm like, I'd never seen the piece before. I could not play. It was humiliating. And I didn't understand it. You know, I, I had parts that could write, and then I had parts I couldn't write. So some days I would sit down to write, and I could not put a sentence together. I mean, it's crazy. But like all these parts have their jobs. And like I even had some of them for watching movies. So like I watch a movie. I don't know if I've watched it before. So people say, have you seen this movie? I'm like, I don't know. So my daughter, Laura, tells me what movies I've seen. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Thank you. So Laura tells me. I'm like, someone says, have you seen this movie? And I look at her, and she goes, yes, you've seen it. No, you haven't seen it. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> and it still works. I don't know why. So it's, it's fascinating watching how this works. Now, there's something called, you've, you've got still in there, though, the core person of who you are, because God does not allow that to be taken away from you. The whole purpose of the cult is they're trying to tear out demonic. They want to tear out who God created you to be. That's their full purpose, and they're working really, really hard to do that, but God keeps it there always. So our job is, in healing, find out who you are. And that, for me, has been my favorite part of healing. I hate healing. Healing hurts. But when I finally figured out, hey, I get to find out who Lisa is, that part got fun. My kids really don't like it because <laughs> they don't know who I am. And they're like, you, you like what? You're doing what? 
or like they, they can't you know, anticipate anything anymore because I'm throwing them all these curveballs. I'm like, <laughs> this is kind of funny. <laughs> I just keep throwing them. There is something called ab reactions, which is the core person is not present and parts are taking over and running their life and it just runs havoc with them. And the per core person's not present, they're gonna lose time and sometimes they'll even show up in a place they don't even know where they are. And then there's co-conscious when the core person's there and they can talk back and forth with the parts. It's very, very confusing. As they heal, you want the core person to be in charge. You want to integrate, get rid of the parts, let the core person be whole. God's part is to be whole. God wants you whole. Devil wants you to just be in pieces all over the place and have all these parts running amok. God wants you whole. Part problems. Parts will keep you from getting help. There's parts that are made in there by the group and they will keep you from getting help. They will keep you from ministry. They will keep you from counseling. Some parts are cult loyal because they're going to be programmed in by the cult. Some parts can't talk. So, so you get into counseling and the person's going to stop talking. And sometimes they're babies. It's hard to say. Some of them are just programmed not to talk. Some parts aren't going to trust anybody. And some parts have been demonized by the groups, so you need to be doing some casting out while you work with them. And the core person gets lost in the tangle of all these parts taken over. can be a mess. Healing goals, salvation, the person has to be saved. You really can't heal from SRA without salvation. It is a spiritual abuse, and you really need God. You cannot heal. The person's been demonized. Sometimes they've been possessed, not always. But you cannot heal without God. You need trust in God. They have to get to a place where they're co-conscious, not have reactions where the parts are taken over and they're losing time and control. Find the core person. Core person has to take charge. Parts have to be found and they brought to Jesus in sessions. You need the information from them. You know, we need to know our story. We need to know who's safe in our life. We need to know who's not safe in our life. And integration and healing. Very important. What time are we going to stop? Hoo-hoo. Do we have any questions at this point? I know I'm chunking through fast. Didn't you? Siblings. Your siblings, did they experience any of this? Did they ever share that they experienced? I don't, I don't hear from them at all. Is your father still alive? Yes. He had a stroke many years ago now, 20 15, 2016, I think. But I haven't heard from any of them since 2006, I believe. My brother um, got in the middle of a court case. I got pulled into it and messed with, and we haven't heard from him since. Are they still in the satanic stuff? Probably. They don't, 
you don't get out of that. If if you pull out of the satanic, they really mess with you. You can be killed for that. Are they still in the same area? I'm sorry? I'm sorry? Are they still in the same area? Nope, they're down in Ohio now. They left as soon as we got engaged, which was the most crazy engagement ever. They moved almost immediately. I mean, crazy. They hightailed it out of here. We're not sure why exactly, unless they just figured I was going to start telling Patrick everything. But when, when we went up north to, because uh, we were, went to college at the University of Michigan, we came up north for Patrick to ask to marry me. And so I sat on the, my mom's chair and like, can we go in the other room? And, and she grabbed onto my arm and dug her fingernails into me. And she's like, don't do this to me. And I'm like, oh, man, this isn't going to go well. And so we went off to the other room. Didn't hear from him, didn't hear from him, didn't hear from him. And we go out. And my dad said, well, I guess we're going to lose you. And she twirled around, and she ran into the kitchen, started scouring a pan that was not dirty. And it was the weirdest thing. It was like we had done something wrong. The next morning, we went to church, just like awkward in the car. We get to the church, and they're like, my daughter just got engaged, and everyone's like high five. Oh, that's great! Back in the car, and it's just like. <laughs> yeah, it's just like. I'm really glad Patrick married me. You should have run the other direction, but I'm really <laughs> glad. <laughs> really glad you married me. But then through the years, my dad would test Patrick to see what he knew. He was just probing him. What has she told you? What do you know? What's going on? And then one time, you were watching some kind of show, saw a commercial or something, and he made some kind of comment to you about something about you with our young daughter, something inappropriate. And Patrick said, oh, only, you know, how did you say it? He said, I would never think of something like that besides only people that would are sick. And then my brother said, well, I think it's funny. You know, it's like, that's disgusting. That's just, but it, again, he was probing. What do you know? And then another time, uh, somebody we had heard from up here, he'd said that his daughter had accused him of sexual abuse. And then my dad said, but his daughter's always been a liar. You know, or... When the Kennedy Smith thing came out, and he goes, well, she was asking for it with the way she was dressed. You know, like just crazy, sick things through the years. And he was probing. And then he had said, oh, with a girl, she was always a liar. And he goes, and he told you that he, that he had had my mom call to get my medical records in case anybody had ever said that about him. And then you had said, well, why would anybody say that about, why would Lisa ever say that about you? You know, so like craziness. Yes. So all this 
did you know what was going on? No. Not with that tackle. No, but there were a few things Lisa had told me about that sounded weird, so my antenna was up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They must have been just living in fear. They did not want me marrying Patrick. I mean, they tried to stop it, not outright, because they knew I wouldn't have listened to that, but they had tried in a lot of different ways. I mean, like, the, the, the day I married him, I was looking for some sort of, like, tender moment from my mom. You know, like, just, just let there be, like, I don't ever remember being held by her don't ever remember just love from her, just any connection at all from her. So like the day we get married, it's like there's got to be something, just some tender moment, some, there, she's got to love me, she's got to love me. And so at one point, the pastor's like, okay, then after I pronounce you man and wife, I want you to go over to your parents and, and hug them. So I went to my mom, I'm like, this is the moment has arrived. So I go up to her, and I'm like, I love you, Mom. And she's like, your, your veil's coming off. And I'm like, yes, fix my veil, because we must look perfect. You know, there we go, Danielle. I had to look perfect as I walked down, back down the aisle the other direction. So, like, again, it was all about the perfection of how we looked. You know, and, and they ha and, but they must have been in fear with Patrick the whole time. They lived in fear because she was not controllable. Yes. How do you think your parents justified what they were doing in comparison to going to church? I don't think they cared. They owned me. I was their commodity, and I was how they could jumpstart what they needed. You know, my dad got a loan he never would have gotten for his pharmacy to start. He got money. He got position, he got the power, and I'm sure it was generational, so that's just what you do. And my mom's whole thing was, well, kids are resilient. And she'd say that all the time. So it didn't matter what you did. And that's what kids were for, right? Church was basically a status quo then. Yeah. You use church because nobody would believe, well, they're a church-going family. Mm -hmm. Nobody believes that about a church-going family. Right. They're a church-going family. They're a good they're pillars of the society. Yeah. Danielle. Um, can you, I, I don't think you expounded on this. How much damage was done to your body? No. A lot. I went, <laughs> my daughter went to a doctor recently, and you have to go through your mom and dad's medical history. So she's going through mine, and the doctor asked her for my date of death. I'm like, that? that's nasty. <laughs> it's really nasty. So I had a lobe of my lung removed several years ago because it had scarred shut. I had this um, sinus scarred shut, and the doctor's like, well, that comes from trauma or surgery. It's like, well, yeah, because that's where their hand went to cover my mouth because they would shut off my breathing, and that was their control. When you didn't do what they wanted you to do, they'd shut off your breathing so you'd about pass out, and they're like, okay, now do it. No, and so they shut off your breathing. Okay, now do it. And so that's exactly where the hand went. 
so that's why that happened. Um, let's see, fibromyalgia, asthma, um, birthing. My first baby was four weeks early. The second was five weeks early. The third one was almost born at 24 weeks. The second one was 19 weeks. So with those two, I was in and out of the hospital. I had a pump in my leg around the clock, medication. I had toxemia with the last one. Um, I had a uterine ablation. Asthma. Asthma. Um, chronic migraines, still fighting those. So what would asthma have to do with your abuse? Almost all survivors have asthma. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a stroke yeah stroke when I was 37 had ischemic blindness a lot of things that they just can't figure out why um, coughing fits what's the throat thing vocal cord dysfunction um, vomit cyclical vomiting syndrome where I would just start throwing up couldn't stop they don't know why. Could throw up for like eight hours straight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lazy eye. Emotional ticks. Start blinking, can stop. Uh, I don't know. There's other stuff. It's hard. Yeah, I have to get the list to go looking at it. Yes. Was your grandparents involved in any of this? Where were your grandparents? They lived in Cincinnati, so they were, yeah. We saw them once a year. Yeah. So. Do you know of anyone that's ever been brought to the courts and actually been prosecuted for doing SRA? There's starting to be a few. So if you look at um, abuse with ritualistic elements, they're they're hard to find because they don't want you to know they're out there, but there's starting to be a few. There's a noted case or two in England. Yeah. Yeah. The courts actually believed you, didn't they? Well, the... Yeah, it didn't get to the courts, but the district attorney did. I talked to her at the time, and I mean, they followed it for a little while. 